0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast, presented by University of California Television.
1: What we're going to do tonight is have a conversation, and I think this is going to be very revealing. Uh, I had the opportunity, the privilege, in fact, uh, for the last half hour or so to talk to these three exciting scientists about their exciting work, and it truly is that. Um... They represent some of the best and the brightest in the Bay Area, perhaps the world, in this emerging science. And we are all in trouble. We're running out of petroleum. We're running out of the fossil fuel that's kept us going for a century or more. And there has to be something to replace it. And I think that uh, what you'll learn here in the next hour or so is a, a fascinating glimpse into... The world of synthetic biology, really, is what it's about. This is a word that hadn't existed until a decade ago. And these three scientists here represent the brightest and the best minds in the world on this subject. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. So I want to start with Jay Kiesling. Jay, what's the problem?
2: And is biofuels the answer? Great, thanks. Well, uh, you pretty much summed up the issues. The the earth is warming, Uh, we've got increasing concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere, Uh, there's a strong correlation between the warming of the earth and the concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere, and that CO2 is derived from fossil fuels that we're burning. Uh, At the same time, we have uh, diminishing reserves of those fossil fuels, and that means that uh, in the near future, the cost of those fuels will go up substantially, as their availability dwindles, and at the same time we're sending a lot of our currency to uh, troubled parts of the world, um, unstable parts of the world. So there's a possibility of changing all of that. This is how we derive our petroleum-based fuels right now. Uh, Petroleum, uh, old carbon, if you will, is pumped up from the ground. Uh, It is refined in refineries, and then we put that into our tanks. And when we burn that fossil fuel in our tanks, uh, in our engines, that releases carbon dioxide that goes into the atmosphere. That's carbon dioxide carbon that would have been sequestered uh, for millennia underground is now being released into the atmosphere. Now, one possible route around this is the route we're currently using for producing corn-based ethanol. Carbon dioxide is captured by plants as they use sunlight to produce the plant itself. So they're pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They're turning this into the plant itself. And in the case of corn, a great deal of that carbon is being sequestered as starch in the kernels. We then cut that corn, refine the starch, um, separating the starch from the rest of the kernel turn it into sugar using enzymes, and then that sugar is fermented to make ethanol. That ethanol is then burned, and that returns carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So, in a sense, this process could be carbon neutral, where the carbon captured by the plant is then burned in our tanks and released back into the atmosphere. Now, there are a few challenges with this route of corn to ethanol. I want to describe some of those challenges, and then we'll talk about some of the challenges in a replacement for corn and for ethanol. So, uh, the first challenge is with corn. Uh, I happen to be from a farm in Nebraska, where we grew a great deal of corn. Uh, And uh, I actually spoke about this last week at the University of Nebraska, where this was considered near heresy. Uh, But... uh, There are some challenges with corn. It takes a great deal of water, it takes a great deal of energy. So, we fertilize corn to get the high yields that we're now getting on farms across the U.S. That fertilizer, nitrogen-based fertilizer, ammonia fertilizer, is made using a great deal of energy. In fact, a third of the energy in agriculture today is used producing nitrogen-based fertilizers. One percent of the world's energy is used producing nitrogen-based fertilizers. Corn has been bred as a food crop over centuries and engineered for the last couple of decades to be the best food crop we can possibly make. It's not ideal as an energy crop. What we'd like to replace that with, though, is biomass. Biomass from many different sources. If you imagine uh, all the paper in landfills, this is largely cellulose, largely polymers of sugar that could be converted into biofuels. Biomass in the form of uh, plant material, for instance, uh, in forests, trees that have fallen down that could be cleared, uh, the uh, corn uh, stover. So all of the corn except for the kernel itself, all of that is biomass that could be turned into fuel. Now, the U.S. Department of Energy, in nineteen, in two thousand five, did a study, and they estimated that there's about a billion tons of that biomass that's relatively unutilized that we could capture in some way. We could collect the corn stover from the fields. We could collect fallen down trees. Um, We could take the paper out of our landfills and convert that into fuels. Now to give you some perspective of how much fuel we could make from that, this shows the amount of energy that we used in 2007 in terms of oil. In 2007, we used roughly 7.5 billion barrels of oil in the United States. Roughly two-thirds of that was imported oil, and a third of that was domestically produced. Now, if we take that billion tons of biomass and burn it, you could get nearly the energy equivalent to the energy in the imported oil. Let me say that again. That billion tons of biomass that's unutilized could be turned, if burned, into equivalent energy of that in the imported oil and if we now turn that into biofuels we could get roughly the amount of energy that we get out of our uh, domestically produced oil but that's technology that we don't yet have available to us now i just want to talk briefly about the end of this pipeline and that is the fuel that we've chosen to produce We've chosen to produce ethanol, and while ethanol is an interesting start and is a great oxygenate for our gasoline at small percentages, there are a number of challenges with it. The first challenge is that ethanol is produced by yeast. This is uh, yeast. It grows in large tanks like this. Ethanol is toxic to yeast. Ethanol can actually be used to uh, as, as a sterilizing agent. So when it gets up to about 15 to 20%, in this large vat, it's toxic to the yeast, and the yeast quit producing it. That means you've got 85% water in there that you have to get out before you can put that ethanol in your tank. And that requires energy-intensive distillation. You're essentially boiling all of that water and ethanol to boil off the ethanol and purify it to get 95 to 100% ethanol that you would put into your tank. Now, the additional challenge is... How do we get that ethanol to wherever we need to use it? That ethanol is produced largely in the Midwest, where we have corn, and we need it to get it to the east and west coasts, where most of the automobiles are. We can't pipe it because ethanol is corrosive to pipelines, so we have to ship it either by rail or by truck, and right now we're limited in rail cars and trucks to ship that ethanol. What's more, we can't use ethanol in airplanes or in diesel engines, because it isn't compatible with those kinds of engines. I like to say that ethanol is for drinking, not for driving. (laughs) So if you were going to produce a replacement to ethanol, what would you produce? Well, I'd produce an oil or a biodiesel or a biojet fuel directly. Imagine if you could engineer a microbe to produce an oil, and it would secrete that oil. We all know about oil and water. They don't mix. That oil could float to the top, and if it were the appropriate uh, uh, type of oil, it could be put directly into your gas tank, for instance, if it were uh, like the molecular weight of gasoline, or if it were slightly denser, it could be used as a diesel fuel or a jet fuel. And those are some of the challenges that we need to get beyond in producing uh, biofuels. Now, I just want to close my part here uh, by showing you the full cycle. So, the idea is now to replace corn with uh, cellulosic-based biomass. Uh, This is a hay bale, that's one possibility of getting that biomass, and to replace the ethanol with a transportation fuel that's compatible with our existing infrastructure, and there are a number of challenges along those routes. We have to degrade that biomass, and we have to engineer microbes to produce that fuel, and those are going to be the subjects of the next few talks that you're going to hear.
1: Thanks. Uh, Jay, I have one, one more question. You said earlier that uh, ethanol doesn't work. Butanol, which we had discussed earlier, uh, might be something that could work because it has more carbons. More carbons, more better. That's the idea?
2: That's right. So, so if you had a flex fuel car uh, and you could put 85% ethanol in it, say uh, E85, you'd get about two-thirds of the miles that you would on a gallon of gasoline. So it has less energy density. The more carbons you put on that molecule, the more energy density you get. You also get an insolubility in the fermentation broth. So that means that as the Chain gets longer, more carbons, it becomes less toxic because it's less soluble. And therefore, it could just float to the top and you skim it off. Hmm. Butanol would be difficult. Hexanol is better. right? So as that chain becomes longer, it becomes a better fuel and less toxic to the producer. Great. Uh,
1: My my question, Jim, to you, how do you turn this biomass then into a fuel? How do you make that transition?
0: Jay's an engineer. (laughs) <laughs> I, think, I think there are some major hurdles that um, understanding how these processes occur in nature uh, will help us to help us to, uh, to solve these problems. so yeah. I think if we, uh, we want to change uh, our starting material from corn to other cellulosic materials, woody materials, we need to be able to grow those things in a way that we don't compete with. Uh, with foodstuffs, with the the land that's grown uh, used for foodstuffs. We need to use uh, crops that provide the maximum yield on the the minimal amount of land that we can possibly use to grow this biomass. We need to understand the process in nature that turn the the biomass, the sugars that are stored by plants in their cell walls, into something that we can uh, then ferment into fuels or otherwise... uh, uh, root through the metabolism of engineered microbes into even better fuels than than uh, ethanol or lower alcohols. This is sort of solar energy, isn't it? Plants are like batteries. That's where our energy comes from. We have very few other sources. Ultimately, it all comes from the sun. Even the fossil fuels that we're burning ultimately came from plant materials that were produced uh, eons ago and, uh, and been, have been buried in the earth for a long time. But Ultimately, the energy that produced them came from the sun. We need to re-harness that to try and try and take recent carbon dioxide that's been fixed into, uh, into sugars in the plant cell walls and turn those into fuels. What's the ideal plant? Some people have talked about switchgrass and,
1: and other grasses that grow naturally. Would, would that be a, a good source?
0: I think it depends on, on where one lives. I think ultimately the strategies that are thinking that people are talking about involve different plants in different, different parts of the country, so that in the Pacific Northwest, where poplar is grown renewably, uh, that might be your source of biomass. Now, it may raise the cost of paper a little bit, but personally I'd rather have the cost of paper go up a little bit than the cost of food go up a little bit. Uh, in, uh, in the prairie states... Marginal land that can't be used for corn and soybean could be used for, for switchgrass, giant grasses like, uh, like miscanthus uh, that produce a very high yield of biomass uh, uh, per acre will be used. In the south uh, and parts of the west, it'll be pine. Uh, in In the southwest, the source of biomass might even be algae grown, uh, uh, grown in the... Uh, uh, in the New Mexico desert, for example. So, depending on where you live, the biomass may, may come in a different flavor.
1: Hmm. Uh, the way to turn the biomass then into a fuel would be through some genetic engineering of the microbe, or what? Susanna, is that what, what we're after?
3: Yeah, so the idea is that we can then find. Find the enzymes that carry out these processes in organisms in nature and then harness those for our process to break down the biomass into something like sugars, which we can then find the pathways that could synthesize something that's a usable fuel out of those sugars. Nature already does this. Yeah. How? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are are lots of organisms that break down biomass. I mean, we're saying, you know, biomass is this great source of energy, but the reason we don't use it so far is because it's hard to break down, and yet... Clearly that happens all the time and plants are always getting recycled into carbon dioxide or else we wouldn't have a, the carbon cycle would be imbalanced and we'd be depleting carbon dioxide from our atmosphere rather than adding it through these fossil fuels. And so we want to find out, you know, where are those organisms that degrade biomass and what are the pathways that they're doing it with.
1: So how are you finding these?
3: Um, well, we're just looking in nature and saying who's breaking it down, you know. So there's animals that actually consume biomass. Um, ranging from insects to ruminants to even, you know, marine organisms and birds that are able to convert plant biomass into energy, and so we're trying to find out, you know, what pathways they they use to do that.
1: So we're going to reinvent the termite and the cow rumen? and, and that, is that
3: well? We're going to we're going to pluck the pieces from those that we find useful and take them and put them into these synthetic biology pathways and try to make them do what we want them to do. Um,
0: so we're in the parts yeah. business. Suzanne so. and I are at the, the Joint Genome Institute are really uh, not that different from, uh, uh, from your local car supply, supply uh, parts dealer. We just are dealing in genomic parts, and we're interested in, in understanding genomes. Genomes are the parts list for organisms. We're, in the, we're all about identifying those parts and allowing mm. them to be made available to the broader biological community that's going to turn them into solutions to our problems.
1: I'll tell you something. I talked to Susanna and Jim a little earlier and and asked this question, and the answer I got is one I'm going to ask to elicit here. It's like taking a, a puzzle and finding the pieces. Not a single puzzle, but hundreds or maybe even thousands of puzzles, dumping them all into a vat, And picking out the pieces and seeing what works. Could you talk about how this sounds like a daunting
0: challenge? Shall we? Shall we? Can I show you how we start? Sure. (laughs) So the genome, as I said, is just a parts list uh, for all of the cell's parts. In in a human, each of your cells has uh, uh, two copies of every chromosome, and together they uh, encode the proteins that allow us to do what we do. The genetic material that constitutes the genome for most of the organisms we're interested in, sorry, uh, is DNA. There are other nucleic acids that are, are uh, RNA particularly in, in some viruses, but for all intents and purposes, DNA is the molecule that, that we're gonna be interested in talking about tonight. And it has this, um, this by now, quite familiar double helical structure And when that structure was solved by Crick and Watson in 1953, one of the things that popped out at them immediately was this base pairing in which T was always matched with A in the structure and G was always matched with C in the structure. And that suggested to them the obvious mechanism whereby DNA could replicate itself because if you separated these two strands, you knew what had to go in the linear order of these G's, A's, T's, and C's on the, on the DNA, in the DNA structure. So G always pairs with C, T always pairs with A, and our job as DNA sequencers is to read those linear orders of G's, A's, T's, and C's. So uh, when we do that, I've stripped away one of the copies of the DNA strand here to give just some, uh, a random piece of a gene, and what the cell does is generate an RNA copy and then a, an RNA copy of the DNA that can be read here, uridine replaces thymidine, but otherwise it simply uh, behaves, uh, uh, follows that same rule, G with C, this time uh, U with A, and T. Uh, you can then translate this code, source of another Nobel Prize, three at a time, into the specific amino acids, which are the building blocks, the structural building blocks, they churn tr- they out the enzymes that allow us to carry out metabolic processes. All of this is derived from the linear sequence of the DNA. So if we can get that linear sequence of the DNA, we have a chance of understanding the parts list for every organism. And there's been really a, an enormous increase in the capabilities in this realm over the last several years. What I've shown here is the, the sequencing output at the JGI since uh, I joined the JGI in, two, in 2004. And at that time, we used uh, a method developed by Fred Sanger, yet another Nobel Prize. Uh, and the crux of this, reaction, or of this uh, system was that we carried out DNA sequencing reactions 96 at a time. And we were able to scale that up by hiring lots of people and, and buying lots of these uh, capillary sequencing machines, which you see here. Uh, but we were still quite limited in the amount of output. And we managed to get up to about 30 billion bases of sequence. And that's 10 human genomes a year, pretty good effort for a, a modest sized facility like ours. But as you can see in the last couple of years, our sequencing output has really begun to increase uh, exponentially. And the reason for that is the introduction of two new machines one from 454 technology, shown here, that allows us to do 500,000 sequencing reactions at a time. And yet another machine from, uh, from Illumina, originally developed by a company called Selexa, but then purchased by Illumina, that allows us to run 100 million sequencing reactions at a time. And the net result of that is a sequencing output that's increased to almost. 800 billion bases of DNA sequence in a year. So that's, uh, that's what? About 250 individuals uh, in a year, about the capacity of the number of people that are, that are here now. Well, that's allowed us to really scale up what, um, uh, what we can do as a sequencing facility. So how does this all fit together? Well, um, we start. Uh, by getting the material that we're interested in sequencing, we have a program where we ask investigators who are interested in DOE-relevant problems that might benefit from having a genome sequence to bring us those problems. We have an annual proposal process. And we get some really interesting biology and some fascinating uh, uh, science brought to us through that program. Uh, The hardest part of any genome project is right here. That's getting the DNA in the door. High quality DNA to sequence is really the hardest part of any sequencing project. But once we've done that, after investigators have spent months figuring out how to get nice, large chunks of DNA, the first thing we do is take that DNA and share it into tiny little fragments. A little disappointing for some of them. And then we sequence those thousands, millions of fragments. So we get this linear Gs, As, Ts, and Cs. and then. Uh, people with enormous computer skills, like Susanna, take all these random pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and start to assemble them based on their alignments with one another. And if we're dealing with a relatively simple microbial genome, as I've shown here, it should end up in a whole circle. Frequently, there's some holes, and we have to do some sort of manual improvement of the genome to be able to get this thing into a complete genome sequence. But we're now in a, in a position to be able to do this for microbes a couple of hundred times a year. And for more complicated organisms, it takes us a little longer. Of course, those are just letters. One of my ex- earliest experiences at the JGI was delivering a DNA sequence to a, a, a young uh, graduate student. I don't remember where exactly. And she called me up shortly after we'd sent her the sequence, and she said, I opened the file, but it's just letters. <laughs> um, and she was right. I told her if she looked carefully, she'd see, actually, there were only four, four letters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we helped her out by, uh, by going the next step, and that's finding the genes and proteins within that sequence. And we now have computational methods for simple organisms that allows us to do that with very high accuracy. For higher organisms, we need a little more help in trying to find the genes, and we need some experimental data to tell us exactly what genes look like in different kinds of organisms. But we can generate those data on our, on our sequencing machines as well. So after we've, uh, after we've um, found the genes, uh, we assign them names and functions, and frequently, to the best of our ability, for many organisms, at least half the genes will have no idea about what they do, and we may have never seen them before because many of the organisms we're sequencing are from very diverse parts of the, uh, uh, the uh, tree of life. But one of the very important things about sequencing lots of genomes is that you, you learn a lot from sequencing one genome. You learn way more if you sequence some related genomes and, con- and can compare them i picked here uh, just a random uh, genome and a random gene shown here in red, uh, about which there was absolutely nothing known, and using a system developed at JGI, I aligned it to several other genomes that had the most similar copies to this gene, and one of the things that you'll see is, while there's really not a lot shared between most of these genomes, you can see that there's a, a set of four or five genes that are very much uh, reproduced in their order and size in this genome, and most of them are also present in this genome. And in bacterial genomes, at least, that clustering of, of, uh, of genes of related sequence usually suggests that there's related functions for those, the genes that are closely clustered like that. And using this sort, of comparative, uh, this sort of comparative analysis, we can oftentimes find mistakes that we've made in our sequencing we're in our gene calling, and more importantly, we can get at some of, the, uh, some of the potential functions of these genes. You're really kind of,
1: at this point, you're peering into nature's blueprint for not just
0: these organisms, but what they all do. Right. And one of the really fun things about this is that uh, many of these will have never been seen before. Nobody has ever thought about these genes before. And we, we now have a system where we are sharing these kinds of data for organisms that uh, we've generated simply to, to begin to understand the diversity of microbes, we're making those available to students. And students are starting to play around with some of these data and looking at things that nobody has ever seen before, where there's no right answer, unlike any kind of laboratory that they've ever seen before. It's really quite an exciting, uh, quite an exciting advance for us.
1: Sure, the graduate students do all the work, and you guys get all... <laughs> That's the idea. <laughs>
0: Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So how are we going to use these things? We need to make better biomass. We need to understand how to get more biomass on an acre of land. So we've been interested in in sequencing the biomass substrates, or or reasonable um, comparators for biomass substrates, for the last several years. So we've sequenced the poplar genome. It was the first tree to be sequenced. We've sequenced uh, sorghum, which is a second uh, bioenergy crop in the U.S. currently. We've participated in the maize genome sequence. We're just starting with switchgrass and with, and with miscanthus, miscanthus um, which are complicated genomes. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And because they're so complicated, we've worked on some other grasses that are, have somewhat simpler genomes, and uh, we suspect that we may be able to learn something about the more complicated genomes by sequencing these these simpler models. They're somewhat related. Right. We also um, are interested in degrading biomass. Susanna's going to talk about this a lot more, but this is really, from my perspective, the crux of the the problem in converting cellulose into fuels. Plants have spent the last several hundred million years learning how not to be degraded uh, because they can't run away from their enemies. Uh, so they have a cell wall that's really quite impenetrable. But we're also not wading through trees and uh, through tree branches and leaves on our way to work in the morning. So somehow the biomass that exists and the trees that have died are getting broken down in nature. And uh, one of our tasks is to understand the parts list from the organisms that are doing that in nature. And then finally, fuel synthesis. Um, you know, we're, we're fermenting uh, sugars into ethanol now, the way the Egyptians did, you know, 6,000 years ago. We ought to be able to do better than that. We should be able to find organisms that are more tolerant to uh, to the uh, the substrates that they're producing. Uh, we're sequencing uh, engineered E. coli that are more uh, resistant to alcohol, or that or that produce other uh, potential fuel substrates. We're interested in biogas as well. Uh, we're interested in Communities that make uh, uh, that make mixed alcohols. So there are lots of different people with different strategies about how to do this. They are bringing those problems to us and allowing us to produce the genomes of the organisms that they're interested in to help them modify their modify their processes.
1: So, so you get a handful of stuff, soil or or rotting leaves or something, and then then what do you literally? What do you do with it?
0: Well, we don't get that. We ask them to make DNA from it first. Uh, And the reason we do that is because frequently making, as I said, making the DNA is the hardest part of a genome project Mm -hmm. in many instances. The investigators who have been working on these systems for decades usually have a pretty good idea about how to go about that, a much better idea than we would. Uh, So we have some tips. We can put them in contact with other people who have faced similar problems if they when they run into trouble. Uh, but by and large, they're better suited to make the DNA and ship us the DNA than to have us try and tackle that part of the, that part of the process. Sure.
1: Uh, well, Susanna, could I ask you, what, brown rot fungi and white rot fungi, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, is that what we're modeling?
3: Yeah, I mean, those are very effective biomass degraders. You know, if trees are decomposing in the forest, you're going to find tons of fungi, and those are some of the only organisms that can really break down all the different components of that biomass. And so those genomes have yielded a wealth of information of how this actually ha- happens in nature that we really didn't have before sequencing those genomes. And they've yielded these enzymes that we can then use, whether as part of, you know, in that organism or engineered into some other organism that will actually help us break down that plant material.
1: Well, I can see it now brown rot fuel here. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, so what do these things do and how do they do it and what is it you're trying to mimic? Well, should be we... far, far away. away. Far All right. away, okay.
3: <laughs> Alright, so we've got these Gina, Well, I guess we'll move on to uh, biomass. And so the reason, like, as we were saying, that we're not using biomass to make fuels now is just that it can be so hard to degrade. And that's because Starch, which is what we're currently using, is really straightforward to break down into sugars. It's just a bunch of sugar molecules linked together with one kind of bond, and so you only need one kind of enzyme to break Mm. that down. And then cellulose is also a polymer of sugars. It's a slightly different one that tends to form these very insoluble crystals. So the enzymes can do it, but they have a hard time getting at the material. So that's one obstacle. But then cellulose is only a fraction of the biomass. There's also these other components, hemicellulose and lignin. Hemicellulose is made up of sugars, but it has this much more complex branch structure that you need many enzymes to degrade. And lignin is completely disordered and has a different structure in every different kind of plant that is not very amenable to to enzymatic breakdown. And those fungi are some of the only things that can do it. And they do it often by non-enzymatic processes. They do free radical chemistry that just sort of shreds it apart because that's one of the only ways to get rid of that, which is this glue that keeps you from getting at the cellulose that really contains the sugars.
1: That's why redwood trees last so long, I would take yeah. it. In. Yeah,
3: and so trees make a ton of lignin, and that's really what makes them rigid. And so when we're engineering these biomass feedstocks, one thing that we think about is maybe you could get rid of some of that lignin because you don't need your biomass fuel feedstocks to stand up straight for any length of time. And then you can grow more of your carbon into something you can make into an actual... Fuel, and so like we said, though nature is very good at getting these things degraded. And so, in nature, we've tried to look at you know where, what are the organisms that are actually carrying out this process? And so um, we know that wood is pretty stable until something actually manages to infiltrate it. Something like a termite can actually digest a huge quantity of wood, which is an otherwise very stable substance. And so they're actually responsible for much of the biomass breakdown, especially in cro- tropical regions. Um, there are other wood eaters like uh, the shipworm is actually a marine organism that can eat boats and docks. And th- th- you can find wood from the ocean that's riddled with these holes that, from these bivalves mm-hmm. that actually burrow into them. And they break, a, break the biomass down by a completely different method than termites. And, yet, and then there's animals that eat grass like ruminants, cows, and kangaroos actually eat grass as well. And we've, we've got projects to study all of these organisms, including other insects that can break down biomass. I think I mentioned there's a there's a bird that eats leaves and is actually able to ferment in a rumen-like compartment, despite being a small bird that needs to be able to take off and fly with all that mass in it. And that
1: bird's name um, is the
3: the stink bird. <laughs> <laughs> stink bird.
1: <laughs> because it makes because so because it produces
3: methane yeah. when it breaks down these uh <laughs> these leaves. I really
1: wanted to share that with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot
3: of methane. Lots of <laughs> methane. And um and you also know that just if you have a backyard compost heap that just by treating biomass in a certain way you can actually accelerate the degradation quite a bit over something just, you know, sitting on the ground. And then these fungi that we mentioned can really break down uh break down trees and other biomass pretty effectively. And so this is really distributed across the whole phylogenetic tree. Because biomass is such an abundant energy source, the ability to utilize it has evolved many different times. But the interesting thing that we found is that it hasn't really evolved independently, because all of these processes depend on microorganisms. The single cell organisms are the ones that really produce the enzymes that break down that biomass. The cows couldn't eat grass if they didn't have organisms in their rumen that actually broke it down for them, they would starve. And the same with termites or kangaroos or any of these. In general, all the enzymes that degrade that biomass is from microorganisms. And so the genome projects that we have studying all of these are studying microbial uh, communities in these different habitats. And those communities are made up of a lot of different organisms. And we want to find out something about all of those because they work as a team to break down the biomass. It doesn't seem like there's any one organism in there that's actually capable of doing it. It's really a whole community. And So that brings in metagenomics. And so the traditional way you might study these these communities is you take the sample that you know is carrying out the, the activity that you want and you take it back to your lab, and you try to grow it. Maybe you try to grow it on cellulose or some kind of biomass to get really something that's degrading it. And so you bring it back, you get it on your your culture, and then you can take those organisms, grow them up, and sequence their genomes, and that would be genomics. And we've done quite a bit of this with biomass degrading individual microorganisms, but we still find that in these various biomass degrading environments, most of those organisms aren't the ones that actually grow on your plates when you take it back into the lab. You might be able to find one that actually degrades biomass, but most of those ones just don't seem to grow well in the lab. And so it's been really difficult to study them. You know they're there. You can find them. You can find their genetic signatures, but you can't find out much about them because you can't actually culture, culture them, and you can't do their, sequence their genomes because you don't have them in culture. And so ultimately with the... Uh, and So it's just that pie chart is showing that the estimates are that something like 1% of organisms will actually grow in the lab. The other 99% are just sort of unknown and ungrowable. But an alternate way of getting at those organisms is to just say we know they have DNA and we can sequence that DNA straight off and then try to get it back into those genomes or even just study it as it is without really associating it directly back to a genome and look for the genes that are what we're interested in within that whole massive of data. But as you were saying, that's kind of like taking a lot of different puzzles, all these different genomes and chopping them up and putting them in one big bin and then trying to reassemble it afterwards. So it makes it a much more complex um, problem. And so and the reason it's called metagenomics is that there's the, the concept is that this organ, these set of organisms don't just happen to be together. They're really a community. And so their genome or combined genome is called a meta genome by analogy of a meta-analysis, which is a combination of many different analyses in one. And so we're really trying to study that community genome as though it's an organism rather than breaking it up into all of those different organisms.
1: So you try to tease out a, a signal then out of these, this pile of DNA? What is the stuff that you're interested in? Is there a yeah. common thread?
3: Yeah. And so there's a lot of different angles you can take to get at those nuggets of useful information. And one is that we do know a lot about the enzymes that break down biomass from isolate genome projects, and so we can look for enzymes similar to those, but that might have a different set of domains next to each other. Because often you'll have, you know, an enzymatic component to a protein and something that binds the biomass and another part of the protein. You might have different combinations in there, or they'll have a little different activity. Because even just changing a little bit of the sequence can often change the exact substrate that something targets. And so we can pull out all of those things by just comparing them in a computer and saying, these are all of my potential enzymes. And then we feed those to the synthetic biologists or the enzymologists, and they can test those and determine if any of these have activities that are really what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, Another is that by these comparative kind of methods, you can just look for things that are more common in that environment than in other environments where the substrate that they're digesting isn't really biomass, you know, if you look look at... A community that's living on sugar or right. something else, then you can say what enzymes are really important for this particular uh, community. Um,
1: it sounds really complicated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is the computer absolutely vital to this? You could you couldn't do this yeah, without it. Yeah,
3: we couldn't even do the DNA sequencing without the computer because it would just you wouldn't the data is generated so mm. fast that no one would ever be able to to process it.
1: Okay, so now you have the gene you want. Mm-hmm. Jay, what do do you do with the gene now? We have this genetic code that Jim explained to us, just four little letters, and you're going to try to make
2: kerosene with that? That's right. So let's let's, let's, let's talk about that (laughs) process. So I talked about how we produce ethanol and the challenges with that. We'd really like to produce a transportation fuel that would work with our current infrastructure. If we think about what you might want to produce, Uh, you might want to produce an oil that you could just send to a refinery. So this oil would come out of the microbe. It would be produced using the sugar. The microbe would act as a catalyst to turn it into an oil. We just send that to a refinery and turn that into all the different products that we get from petroleum now, like gasoline, kerosene, diesel fuel, jet fuel. You also might want to just produce the fuel directly. So imagine that we could engineer a microbe that would produce diesel fuel, and that diesel fuel would just float to the top, and you skim it off and put it into your tank directly. No refinery involved. But it's got to have a high energy content, unlike ethanol. It should be storable and transportable because we need to use it in the same way that we use our transportation fuels now, that is, pipe them over a long distance and maybe store them at a location. It's got to be compatible with our infrastructure, and above all, it's got to be affordable so that we actually want to use it. Now let's talk a little bit about the process of producing that fuel. So uh, we typically use a microbe uh, to produce the fuel. It acts as a catalyst. Microbes have, just like every living organism, take in sugars, and through a series of chemical reactions that are catalyzed by enzymes, they turn that into various products. Some of those happen to be useful products, like uh, ethanol, for instance, or like... Uh, bio-diesel or bio-gasoline. Now, this is a very simplified view of what the metabolic reactions look like inside a cell. It actually looks more like that, where each one of these might represent an enzyme with a chemical reaction. So it's really complicated. There are literally thousands of reactions going inside on inside the cell at any one time. And the question is, how do you go in and engineer one particular reaction or a series of reactions to get the specific product that you want. So we've already heard uh, from Jim and Susanna about uh, where we get our natural parts list. So uh, through sequencing we get this native parts list um, and those components are then components that we can use to engineer the microbe. So for instance there are a lot of plants that produce oils. If we could get the genes that naturally produce those are responsible for producing the oils in those plants and transplant them to a microbe, then we might be able to get that microbe to produce that same oil. But it's not trivial. We start out with a parts list. We need to characterize those parts because, after all, they're coming from nature. We don't know anything about them. But we want to assemble them into a microbe, much like we might assemble the parts to build a computer. Now, that assembly actually is relatively time-consuming. How you take a single component, characterize it, and then assemble it together to form a series of components that would uh, catalyze a reaction inside the cell is really complicated. And then we have to place that big piece of DNA into the microbes to produce our various fuels. Now, as I said, this is much like putting all the components together to build a computer. Unfortunately, in biology, we don't have things like standardized connections, nor do we have a biofab to go out and buy components like we go out to a radio shack and buy components. So assembling all of these components is a much trickier job than, say, replacing the hard drive in your computer. Why do we think that this is going to work work for biofuels? Well, one of the reasons we think it's going to work for biofuels is that we've done a proof of concept with a different hydrocarbon. This happens to be a hydrocarbon that is the leading cure for malaria. It's called artemisinin, and it comes from this plant, Artemisia annua. And over a series of years, my lab took the genes from Artemisia annua and from yeast and put them into a single microbe to produce this drug. And we've come up about 10 million fold in the titers, and this is currently at Sanofi Ventus, where they're commercializing the process, uh, scaling it up so that we can produce in the next year or two years an affordable anti-malarial drug. Well, as I said, this is a hydrocarbon. It's very similar to diesel fuel or jet fuel, and, and I, I want to reassure you, as I did on the Colbert report, that we're not injecting biofuels into babies. Uh... But we've got an engineered organism in our hand that produces a hydrocarbon. We can swap out a few genes, replace them with genes that are now would make a biodiesel or a biogasoline. And we've got an organism now that will produce these in relatively high yield. So how are we going to put all this together? How are we going to do all this? Well, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, in fact in 2007, we recruited at Berkeley both Berkeley Lab and the University of California, Berkeley, substantial support from both BP and from the U.S. Department of Energy to help us, uh, to give us the funding so that we could do the research into all of these challenges into turning biomass into biofuels. And right now, we're working both in the Energy Biosciences Institute here on the UC Berkeley campus and at the Joint Bioenergy Institute in Emeryville on solving some of these um, really difficult challenges in turning biomass into biofuels.
1: Uh, Sounds great. I'm a little worried about when that bug gets out into the environment and starts turning my forest into a sea
2: of petroleum. Great question. Uh, So uh, we've been doing genetic engineering since the early 70s, and uh, the whole goal of synthetic biology is really to make the engineering of biology more predictable, more reproducible, uh, easier to do. And so when you make biology more predictable, that means that there's much less chance of an organism getting out and and getting into the environment and turning all the biomass into biofuels. Um, We also intentionally build these organisms so that they can't survive out in the wild. So you can uh, put a few deletions in key genes so that those organisms require multiple nutrients in order to survive and grow in the fermentation tanks, that they would never find that combination out in the wild. So there are many things we can do to prevent that, and, and we're actively working on that as well.
1: But there are, can be unintended consequences for any technology. Do you anticipate that there may be a hurdle here, some even environmental challenge because of that?
2: Yes, there are always unintended consequences of technology we 've seen this with every technology, and, and we 'll see this. you know, for instance, you could engineer uh, a plant that would be uh, a great biofuel crop, but might, uh, under some particular growing season or some condition, be susceptible to a fungus or to blight and we 've seen this with engineered corn, even corn that 's been bred without genetic engineering, so there can be unintended consequences of even some old-fashioned technologies.
0: Uh, I guarantee you that by planting, rather than... by altering the standard corn-soybean ro- soybean rotation uh, that was done in the last uh, several years to try and improve uh, corn production for corn ethanol, we changed the, the nature of the microbial community in the ground. We undoubtedly did that by altering the soybean fixes nitrogen, uh, organisms that require that nitrogen to live in the ground uh, probably uh, probably didn't do so well during those years. So, any time we alter an environment, we are absolutely going to alter the uh, the biodiversity around it. And our our goal, I would think, would be to try and understand that and manage it, as opposed to just closing our eyes and saying no, we're not we're not producing changes, or we don't care about the changes. I think there's a, there's plenty of work to do there, but we finally have the tools to be able to do that kind of work.
1: Well, some of the criticism about uh, the biofuel industry has been about biodiversity, and about the problem if it should be accepted, and biofuel crops become very popular and and uh, cost effective, uh, replacing. Ordinary uh, jungle habitat in central America is what many people are worried about, for instance, turn Brazil into a uh, um, into a single or a mono uh, crop uh, place <laughs> that
2: doesn 't sound good well, I think we always have to worry about the biodiversity and we, we of course want to preserve uh, the rainforests uh, but Uh, The truth is that uh, we've been doing that for years with uh, just planting uh, food crops as well uh, and other crops. So uh, we've been doing that regardless. Uh, We'd like to prevent that to the extent we can, and and that's why it's extremely important that we have high-yielding, dedicated energy crops. We want crops that don't require a lot of fertilizer so that we don't have to pollute the atmosphere further with carbon dioxide and producing that fertilizer. We'd like crops that can be extremely high yield, so they take advantage of the land that's there. We'd also like crops that, say, could be drought tolerant, because then you could take advantage of uh, marginal lands, lands that might not be suited for planting food crops or other types of crops uh, we might be able to use for planting potential biofuel crops.
1: Well, the replacement of food, obviously, is a big issue. Uh, There's another issue. MIT, a couple of years ago, did a study where they looked at the um, amount of energy required to make biofuels. It uh, turned out to be more than one. I mean, it took more energy to create than it brought out of it. Is, is that a hurdle that we can't
0: overcome? I think it's a definite hurdle. Uh, I think that petroleum is also a very energy-intensive industry. Uh, the reality in the U.S. is that we are going to drive cars. We need a liquid transportation fuel for the foreseeable future. We need to be able to uh, we need to be able to fly jet aircraft. Uh, one of the biggest investors in the biofuels industry is the U.S. military because they are the world's largest consumer of transportation fuels. So I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to need transportation fuels. We need to be able to do it with as little energy input as we can. Uh, both to drive down cost and, in addition, to minimize the uh, the impact on uh, on greenhouse gas uh, liberation. So the more neutral we can get these uh, we can get these technologies, the better. But it's going to take a little time to get there. I think if I I think if uh, we had all gotten here on in uh, horse drawn carriages today, and I had described for you a system where we're going to drill oil in in uh, in Alaska. And we're going to drive it down here in large boats. We're going to offload it to a a large uh, uh, refining station uh, just north of here. And we'll uh, then refine it. Uh, We'll then take that refined fuel and the various products. We'll ship them all over the Western United States. And we'll be able to sell it to you for 3 bucks a gallon. You'd say, I was nuts. But we spent a century doing it, and the technology is extraordinarily re- mature. It's been refined and refined and refined and refined through a century of American know-how. We need to apply that same American know-how to a new kind of transportation fuel. We need to leverage what we, what we can from the existing infrastructure, and I think the, the energy companies have grasped this. What's different, what's different now than 1973 is that the energy companies recognize that this is an emerging market for them the energy companies are starting to participate BP Chevron shell, even Exxon is now uh, is now investing in in algal biofuels so uh, I think the it is a rare time George Schultz makes the point it 's a rare time that the environmental interests national security interests forward looking energy energy companies and uh, uh, The Department of Energy are all on the same page, and everybody is looking at biofuels as essential for energy security. Uh, Three months
1: ago, uh, Shell in Canada opened a, uh, it's for a month only, uh, the first ever public biofuel gas station in Ottawa. Uh, They only ran it for a month, but they did nevertheless have a public, the world's first public, gas station using biofuels they used cellulosic fuels the same process that you're talking about uh, why is that not working they closed it
3: I think it's just the eco- economy of it right now that we just don't have the technology to make it cheaply but I think that we have we know where we need to go and we need to optimize it and in the same way that synthesizing artemisinin would have cost a fortune with the path- pathways and tools that they had a decade ago you know and the cost of that can be brought down to something that it's competing with the natural product. I think the same way that if we can get it down to a cost that's effective, we can do it. I mean, they've shown that it is technologically possible, it's just not inexpensive. And so that's an easier hurdle than something that couldn't be done.
2: And, we, and we've spent relatively small amounts of money trying to solve this problem. I mean, if you consider the energy business is the biggest business in the world right now as a sector... Um, and they spend less on research uh, in the petroleum industry than the concrete industry. Uh, And we all know how much research probably goes into concrete, right? (laughs) So uh, we we spent relatively little money. And in fact, uh, there was a big effort on this uh, in cellulosic fuels in the late 70s. And then in January of 1981, that all came to a halt, a screeching halt. And we've essentially been without significant funding in this area until two years ago. Right? So in that time period, Brazil has been working on uh, advanced sugarcane, they've been working on advanced uh, microbes to turn that sugarcane into ethanol, and they've changed most of their infrastructure now to be able to handle ethanol. Um, we've got a significantly larger infrastructure than they do and we've got a lot of catching up to do Um, but imagine if we had been uh, spending money on research in this area since 1981 where we'd be today we've got to accelerate that we can't wait 20 years to catch up Uh, we've got to get that done now and so that's why it's really important that the department of energy and fuel companies uh, petroleum companies come together and and sponsor this research and they are and they are
1: thank you very kindly i really appreciate your time